Good morning. Good Sabbath morning. Good Sabbath morning to all of you. We got a bit of a startled look out of Emory there. He said, "What are you standing there for?" <laughs> you know, I think we have a theme today. Um, you know, even during the adult service, we were talking about unity, and some of the scriptures that we read focused on love, that four-letter word that we have uh, such a hard time to wrap our heads around. Jim. He called it that mushy stuff. I like that. <laughs> that mushy stuff. Well, we're going to uh, continue the idea of looking at the mushy stuff today. You know, even in some of the songs, I think almost every song that we sung this morning had love. It talked about even our hope is based on the love that God had for us. And there's so much wrapped up in this concept of love. You know, some of you are thinking already, wow, this may be midnight or 2 a.m. before we're finished. Uh, not really. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. Three hours, okay? Frankie's smiling. He understands that. <laughs> My text for today is John 13, 34, and 35. That's the scripture I'm going to focus on for the entire message. And in the New International Version, it says, A new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Three times, if you love one another, if you love one another, if you love one another. Well, having the type of mind that I do, the first question that comes to my mind is, What's love? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever sat down? And I would challenge you to do this. Go through your Bible, find a search engine about your Bible, and look up the scriptures that say love is. Do you want to know a full biblical definition of what love is? Look at all the various things that are said after the phrase love is. But I'm going to work a little differently. I'm going to start with a so-called theological definition. And this theological definition is based on one of the three words that we find in the New Testament that's translated love, and it's agape. Agape is often meant, when we're talking about God's love, we're talking about this word that's from the Greek agape. And there's a huge theological definition, but I'm just going to give you two or three points that you can find in any theological dictionary, Bible dictionary. One of these points, agape love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, unworthy. It's an unconditional love. Now you think about that. How easy is it to love, dare I say it, Donald Trump? How about how easy is it to love to Hillary, just so we keep the politics balanced here? But think about it. Love is not necessarily easy in any circumstance. Agape desires only the good of the one loved. It is a consuming passion for the one that is loved. Do you have a consuming passion for anybody? Think about that. You know, if God didn't have a consuming passion for us, we wouldn't be sitting here. We would not understand him because he wouldn't have died for us. Agape love is altruistic. 
What do I mean by that? Altruistic. That's a big word. I even had to look it up. It means that it's love without expecting something else. You know, I love you, but I don't expect you to love me back. Think about that for a minute. I love you, but I don't expect you to love me back. I don't expect anything in return. You know, if you're in business, in the company that, one of the former companies that I used to work for, that was a defining principle of our company. Not that we wouldn't, didn't want something back, but if we were going to do something for a community, or if we were going to do something for a group of people, we expected them to like us back. You know, consider oil business, environmentalism. You know, if we're there, if we're going to make sure that your whales are taken care of in California, we don't expect you to fight us every tube of the way and probably put a well offshore Los Angeles. It's a give and take. It's not unconditional love. That's not agape. And agape never means the cold religious kindness shown from duty above. Is it your duty to love people? Well, in some respects it is. But if you look at it as your duty, then it comes off very cold. And you can see that in a lot of different places. In a lot of different religious settings, you can see that. I'll love somebody, but it's only because I have to. I don't really want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with them. Let's put it personal. I don't want to deal with them. He's just a bum on the corner. Why should I love him? That's the theology. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible has a lot of things to say, and that's what I mentioned earlier. But I want to go directly to 1 Corinthians 13. And again, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to give you some points. What is love according to 1 Corinthians 13? Patience, kindness, being humble, being honorable, rejoicing in the truth. And we talked this morning in adult study, if you were there, what is truth? Christ is the truth. So we rejoice in Christ. But love protects, it trusts, it hopes, it endures. What is it not? You know, it's always good to contrast things. You know, we can see what things are, but what, are, what is it? What is it not? It's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not dishonorable. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it doesn't delight in evil. That's 1 Corinthians 13, and you can find that 4 through verses 13. So we begin to see that love in the context of a modern song, or maybe not so modern song, is a mini-splendored thing. There are lots of aspects to love. It's not something that we just sit back and absorb or think. It's not just a mere emotion. I heard one person put it here recently, love is an action verb. And that's what it is. If you're going to love somebody, it's going to demand action on your part. It's going to demand response on your part. And that's just in the four-letter word. I want you to keep all of this in the back of your mind. That was just the introduction to where we're going. But I want you to keep that all in the back of your mind, all of the things we talk about. And you can think of more. You can think of Bible scriptures that say love is. Keep that in your mind as we go forward here. In our message text, John 13, verses 34 through 35, I read it earlier. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Why did Jesus call this a new command? You ever think about that? What about his example? What is his example? How about our example? It seems, the scripture seems to say that our example is important. Those are the three aspects that we're going to talk about for the rest of the message. Why is it new? Where's his example fit into it? And where does our example fit into it? What makes this a new command? Well, you think back to Mark 12. Remember what Mark 12? It's also a scripture that's refrained in Matthew. When one of the teachers of the law came to Jesus because he had heard him debating. He'd heard him talking to the Sadducees about resurrection. He was talking about various things to the people of the crowds that were there. And the teacher of the law came and he said, Hey, you guys, Jesus, you had given him a good answer. He said, but I have a question for you. And you can just imagine this. You know, it's like a, it's like a reporter. It's like a CNN reporter interviewing a Republican politician. I got a question for you. <laughs> and you know it's coming. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And you know, there's no pregnant pause. We don't see any indication that Jesus had to think about it a little bit. He said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Seems pretty clear, pretty straightforward. We're supposed to love the Lord with everything that we have. Love the Lord with our heart. That means our emotions. You ever get emotional when you pray to God? When you sing a song? Nothing wrong with that. He wants your heart. How about your mind? Your intellectual energy. What do you spend your intellectual, intellectual energy on? What do you think about? Do you consider the greater things? Consider the lesser things. You spend time studying the Bible. Is God in your mind? How about your strength? Look at that. What do you do? What do you do with your time? How do you do things? Do you th- do things to God's glory? Or do you do things for your own glory? Do you th- do things to God's glory or do you do, do things that aggrandize yourself, make yourself look good? And how about your soul? You know, we can talk all day long as what is your soul. But I'm saying your soul is your very existence. It is your very being. It's actually a summary of all of the things that we just talked about. That's what he wants you to use to worship him. And that's just worshiping him. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. This is Jesus quoting the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. New International Version. So Jesus was simply quoting the Torah. How about love your neighbor as yourself? How many of you like yourselves? I'll raise my hand. You like yourself? I mean, yeah, we got problems, we got issues, but in general, I like myself. I don't want to hurt myself, you know. My dog and I had a little altercation this morning, and I came out bloody. I didn't like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like to be hurt. So I like to take care of myself. You know, back in the old days, in Leviticus, 
we're told that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Don't seek revenge, bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. That's what he told in Leviticus. And if you look at that chapter, that's a whole listing of various laws and principles that was given by Moses to the people to make them live not only with themselves, with God, but with their neighbors also. So we find those in the Torah. We find both of those in the Torah. So if that's the old, that's a little bit different than loving you as God loved me. You think about that for a minute. What did God do for all of us? What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. Most of us have that scripture memorized. So that we could have eternal life. He died for us. A very nasty, ugly death. To pay the consequences of our sin. He paid the price. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to die for your children? Some of us may say yes to that because we love our children dearly. Are you willing to die for that friend that you work with five days a week for the last 20 years? You know, some friends are closer than brothers. Are you willing to do that? Some may be. Are you willing to die for that homeless person on the street? Really? Are you? Are you willing to die, to physically die for that person? You gotta, these are questions you need to ask yourself because the answers reside in you. But he was willing to do that for us. And see, and that's why this command is new. Because the Torah wasn't that way. The Torah didn't tell us to love to the point of death. The Torah told us to love to the point that we love ourselves. Which is a lot of love, but it's not Christian love. It's not Christ's love. You know, he tells us, when we move from that to look at his example, he says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a new standard. And you know, it points to a new world order. Order. Now, if you're big into conspiracy theories, your antenna ought to be twitching about now. New world order. I've heard about that before. Well, you know, the technical definition for a new world order is a, a group of people that got together at the fall of the Soviet Union and they said that we need as a world unity to come together outside of the sphere of the United States, outside of the sphere of the Soviet Union and basically have our own government, our own religions, our own entities, if you will, outside of the two big dogs that have been around since World War II. But if you're conspiracy theorists, and you tie that into end times eschatology, like uh, James Darby was a big proponent of this, then all of a sudden you've got antichrists and you've got false prophets and you've got who these people are and where these people are. And this new world order is the world order that's going to come, that's going to be led by the unholy trinity of Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. Probably coming out of Europe, maybe coming out of the Muslim world and all of that. So when we think new world order, those are the things that kind of come to our minds, depending on how long you've been in church, which side of the aisle you sit on church, that type of thing. 
But what about the true new world order? I'd like to propose to you that there is a true world order that's different from the counterfeit ones that I just described. And this new world order is found in John 4, 7 through 21. It starts off by telling us God is love. Okay? If God is love, Christ is Lord, Christ is love, Christ lives in us, what should we be filled with? Unless I failed logic class, which might have been possible, that we need to be filled in love. God lives in us. He is made complete as us. There's no fear in love. Do you have fears? Are you afraid to fail? Are you afraid that you can do something that God will never pick you up from? Why? Because he tells you, don't fear. He said, if you're filled with my love, that puts that fear away. You know, there's an apocryphal story. It may or may not be true, but it serves a purpose here. Uh, Tertullian was one of the church fathers around 140 A.D. or so, and he wrote a lot of early church literature. But Tertullian was not saved, was not converted until midlife. And he grew up in the Roman city of Carthage at the time. And he indulged in all of the things that Romans would indulge in at that period of time, whether that be the gladiator shows, that would be the open sex, whatever you want to name, he was a part of that because he was actually probably a son of the consul at the time. But the story has it that he was in the arena one day and Christians were being eaten by the lions. That was one of the things they did with Christians back in the 130s. Aren't you glad they don't do that anymore? So they were there being eaten by wild, literally torn apart by wild animals. I mean, you can use your imagination to how that would actually happen. And apparently this particular group of Christians were praying They were singing praises to the Lord. In a sense, they were accepting their fate because they knew something better was down the road. And Tertullian, the son of the proconsul, which is probably the biggest, the most powerful family in the entire city, looked at that group of people and said, I want that power. Because he sensed the power that resided in those people. And was it power? No, it was love. They loved each other, they loved God, Christ loved them. Tertullian saw that and he was converted, changed his life 180 degrees and became one of the premier fathers of the early church. That's what the example can do. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Well, we can go to that right now. Sometimes my notes confuse me. You never know. Okay, our example. You know, when I was a kid, and I'll call myself a kid, fairly small kid, okay? Uh, as I grew up, my dad was a local church elder. And any of you who have been anywhere close to that kind of situations, you know that one of the first lessons you get from your dad is you are an example. You know, people are watching you. And, you know, dad didn't beat it into me too much until one day he said, look, he says, you are an example. 
You can be a good example or you can be a bad example. That's the part that's your choice. But you are an example. So I thought about it, about 13 seconds, of course, since I was a teenager and went over my head. But, you know, as I get older, my dad's gotten a lot and a lot wiser. And that's a part of what we're going to here. And that's part of what Jesus is addressing here. He says that by this, everyone that you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, how does everybody know? How does the guy in the outside, out there on the street, know that we're of Christ? Do we have a little sign on here that says Christ disciples as we walk up and down the street? Well, in one sense, we should. But the other sense is they look at us, they see how we act, they see how we interact among ourselves. And that interaction among our sh- ourselves should tell them that these people are different. And if these people are different, and if they're being led by the Spirit, now they want to know why. Now you have an opportunity for evangelism. And that's by example. Now it makes you want to think about something. Because the Christian church today, and and I've been talking about the Christian church in the greatest sense of the word, is an extremely fractious bunch. We have people arguing about little things. We have people arguing about big things. Anywhere from how many angels can you get on the head of a pen, which is stupid, up to how many parts are there to the Godhead, two or three, which is extremely serious because we need to understand that. And we fight among ourselves. We erect constructs. This is the way we're going to believe God. This is the way we are going to follow Christ. And somebody says, well, I don't like that, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to erect another construct. It's going to be a little bit different than that one. Maybe we're going to worship on different days. Maybe we're not going to worship on any days. We have all of this back and forth. And we're missing the point that those who aren't Christian see all of that. And all you have to do is go a little bit into Christian apologetics. Why do we have all these apologetics that we have to go out and reach the atheist and reach the agnostic? It's because if you read their arguments, that would be the atheist arguments and the agnostic arguments, they look at Christians and say, if that's the way Christ's love is, I don't want to have any part of it. You don't think our example's important? You know, this scripture declares an obligation and a privilege. And I read this in uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on John, and I thought it, was, it, it struck home to me. We consider an obligation. What is our obligation? You know, our obligation, in my words is to respond to the God who has loved us so much that he sacrificed his son so that we can be redeemed. Just different wordings of what I said a bit earlier. That he loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us to pay the price for our sins. Somebody had to pay the price and he did it for us. And this morning in our class, we were talking about unity. And, you know, I think this is where the unity in Christ comes in. That it's his love flowing through us to others. His love 
through us to others. And when the Spirit lives in us and connects us to Christ and Christ is living in us, then we radiate that Spirit. So, okay, fine. He does that. He's God. Let's get back to this obligation thing a bit. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. We read this this morning. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now think about that for a minute. I'm going to pause right there. He chose us. That would be me. That would be you. And that would be all of those that he chose before the world was creating. You know, that kind of makes kind of frivolous the arguments that we have is the earth 6,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old. It doesn't really matter. Before he did it, he picked you and said, you are going to be mine. To be holy and blameless in his sight. How many of you feel like you're holy and blameless right now? Anybody? Well, you can raise your hand because when Christ looks, when God looks at you, he sees Christ and Christ is holy and blameless. So when he said he called you to that before the creation of the world, he called you to be a part of the body of Christ, which we talked about quite a bit in adult class this morning. As you can see, there's a theme going on today. It seems to all fit together quite well. You know, he said, he continued on in this part of Ephesians, and he said, we were predestined for adoption to sonship. And that's adoption in the Roman sense, where when you were legally adopted, you became a son. You were treated as a biological son, and in effect, you were a biological offspring. That's what he has for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Again, I think we read this this morning. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't care if you were born in the church, raised in the church. Or not. You're still a sinner. And he died for us while we were still sinners. But now he doesn't impute that to us because we live, Christ lives in us. Why do we love? You ever consider that question? Because we like somebody? Because it's our kids? I would propose this to you. We love because he first loved us he first loved us and our response to that love is to love him back and love others so you see where I'm going with this obligation thing before he created the world he thought of us while we were still sinners he thought of us he loved us before we ever loved him so what is left for us We need to understand that we're obligated to him. And that's where I want to go with that. We're obligated to him. That is our obligation to accept that love, reflect that love, and move forward in the body of Christ. Carson summed it up this way, and I thought this was kind of a good statement, so I'll just read it to you. True Christians recognize they can never be more than than beggars telling other people where the bread is. We're only beggars telling people where the true bread is. It will never need to be anything more than that. What about privilege? Now our ears pick up, all right, privilege. 
you know, being, a, being Americans, we're big into privilege, right? Yeah. You know, he tells us that we're no longer considered servants, but friends. He tells us that we're called to be children of God. And we'll read those scriptures here in a second, but I'd like to consider an example. And this example is talked about um, oftentimes when John Kennedy, his presidency is talked about. And just before he, was, he took office, uh, John Jr. was born. And when Kennedy was in the middle of discussions with whatever it be, Security Council, Cabinet, or whatever, John Jr. would come barreling in. And John Sr. would kick him out the door and say, hey, I'm too busy for this. No, not really. If you know your history, the story is told that basically John Jr. had full access to Dad anytime, anywhere. How much more so do we have full access to God? Do you think God is ever too busy to answer the phone when you call? You know, some people say that, you know, God's on a party line, you know, and he may be talking to somebody else when you're trying to get through, therefore your prayers are not answered. No. He's always there. He is always has time for you. You know, he can take care of Jim, he can take care of Debbie, he can take care of David, he can take care of Neff, he can take care of Ellis, all at the same time. And me, probably who needs it most, most of all. He can do that all at the same time, because he's God. He's good enough, he's big enough to do that. John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Have you ever considered yourself a friend of God? You know, in the denomination that I grew up with, I was way too afraid to be of God to be his friend. Because friends that I had, human friends that I had, were fairly flawed. They had issues. Sometimes they had issues and I got so mad at them, I just didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. But luckily, God's not that way. He's a true friend. When you have issues, he'll help you get through those issues. When you're in a hole, he'll tell you how to stop digging so we can get out of the hole. He will not abandon you. It's like a true friend, a real friend, not a human friend. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And John emphasizes that. That is what we are! Exclamation point. We are children of God. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Think about that. We are children of God. Think of the ramifications of all of that. Think about your children if you have children, grandchildren. What would you not do? to save your children? Would you die for your children? 
When is there a time when your children could never come to you and ask for something? Is there ever a time when they come and ask you for something that you wouldn't give it to them? I think absolutely. So, when we look at all of that, and we understand that relationship, that we are the children of God, that there is nothing we can't do without the power of God as long as it's within His will. Nothing. Which gets back to the fact that, what are you afraid of? Because if you're filled with that love and you're a child of God, there should be nothing that you should be afraid of. If God packs you up and sends you somewhere to be a missionary where you might get shot and you might get killed, what are you afraid of? So you're killed. What's the next thing you see when you open your eyes? It's God. You know, I, I, uh, a good friend of mine, his dad was a missionary, and they're close to various missionary works. And they tell the stories, and I think this one is actually written up. We're in the Amazon. There was a family went down there, and uh, they were being missionaries to some of the most remote areas in the Amazon jungle, Peru, Brazil, up in that area. And these people were cannibals. They would kill people and eat people. They, uh, the, the family would fly over, or the first, the earliest missionaries would fly over and drop food, and people would come pick it up. And that's how they initiated the first contact. So one time, a couple of these missionaries decided to land. Well, guess what happened? They were killed, probably eaten. The child, I don't know how old, teenage at that time, roughly? Teenage child left after this. this his dad was eaten, probably, by this group of people. He grew up, went to school, went back. While he was gone and went back, his mom initiated contact with this group of people, and they became saved. Almost all of them accepted Christ. This guy goes back, and if I remember the story correctly, he was baptized by one of the guys that killed his father. Would you do that? Could you do that? I would submit to you that they couldn't do that, except for God's Spirit living in them. And we, sit, we draw so many lines, and we put up so many walls. You know, we say, oh, you know, he can't be of Christ. He speaks in tongues. And I understand that tongues are not a New Testament dispensation, that that should have been over with at the apostolic church. Really? If God's Spirit moves somebody to speak in tongues, we're told to test the spirits, but if that's His Spirit, how can you deny it? How can you sit back and say, that's not the way that I think the Spirit should move? Now, we talked a little bit in the adult service, adult Bible study, about not only discerning the spirits, but understanding that it's one spirit, it's one love, and it's one Christ. And it's never going to lead you to do something that's immoral or against God or Christ. It will never do that. So when er when in areas of morality and in areas of ethics, it will never teach you to do or lead you to do something else. That's not the spirit of God. But it may lead you to do something that you're not comfortable with or 
somebody else may not comfortable with. And that's where we have to be aware. We have to have the wisdom and the understanding to follow the lead of the Spirit where he decides to take us. When rightly lived out, our example is a light to the world. And you have to consider that. The world's looking at us. The world wants opportunities to be witnessed to by Christ, but they don't know that in many cases. And sometimes when we grab our signs and walk down to the abortion clinic and we yell at people about their being sinners because they're killing babies and all of this kind of stuff, that message is not getting through because they're not listening to our words, they're seeing our actions. I read a story again, I think Debbie shared this with me, about this abortion clinic that went up in this one town. And of course, you know, hardened, hearted Christians brought their signs and protested and all that. But right next door was a coffee shop, a coffee shop run by a Christian couple. And they said, maybe we should try a different tack. So when the protest went away after a couple of weeks, they went over there with a pot of coffee, gave them some coffee, developed a relationship with them. And within several years, all of the people that were associated with that abortion clinic had changed their thoughts about abortion and moved away from that and become Christians. That was over a pot of coffee. Didn't have anything to do with signs, didn't have anything to do with words, but I suspect it did because when they shared coffee, I'm sure they talked. But the fact of the matter was, it wasn't forced down their throat. And the Spirit used that opening so that you could witness in a manner that would be listening to, listened to and he converted the people in that abortion clinic. And those are not iso- that's not an isolated story. I mean, you read stories like this a lot if you, if you pay attention to what's going on in the Christian world. So I'd like to wrap this up by bringing us back to the adult study. And if you missed adult study, we had an interesting and entertaining study this morning. We discussed at some detail the essence of the oneness that was described by Paul in this Ephesians 4 and the few verses that we were talking about. And I would submit to you that this oneness is a reflection of the love of Christ. That Christ living in us because he loved us. That love reflected out to others is Christ's love. And that's what unifies his disciples. That's why we can sit down and although I don't read Ephesians 1, 7, the same way you read Ephesians 1, 7, we still understand each other because it's the Spirit of Christ that lives in us. That's the oneness that brings his church together. And by church, I mean ecclesia. I mean the, what we had talked about in adult class. These are the people, whatever denomination they find themselves in, that are connected to Christ. They have that connection because he calls them his children. And that connection, wherever they find themselves, is the oneness. Why is it so important? Some 320 occurrences of the word love in the New Testament might be a clue. 320 different times in the New Testament is love discussed, mentioned, brought up. But it's summed up in John 4 and 8. And I'll leave this with you. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love.